Hey there, it's Raleigh. I want to catch you before this episode to tell you about our new and improved bonus podcast, More Mercy. Each week, I break down a MercyCast episode and show how it not only intersects with Scripture, but how it impacts our daily lives. This short devotional episode is only $3 a month, which is like $4 less than a cup of coffee at the Mermaid Place. To access it, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes. Remember, no matter what you're going through, there's always more mercy. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. Today, I want to talk about what we do. I think vocation is important for us as we think through how to love our neighbors through the adversity that we experience. Because at the end of the day, we're all doing something. But if you're anything like me, you've wrestled with, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the thing that God approves of? Does God want me to move to Zambia and be a missionary? Or is it okay for me to work in the office that I'm working in? We all deal with this situation. We want to do the right thing, but sometimes we don't know what that is. Jordan was exiting his second company. He believed that if he truly loved Jesus, he would go on the mission field, believing that the Great Commission was the only commission. He felt like a second-class Christian. Jordan Rayner is a tech entrepreneur and the author of the new book, The Sacredness of Our Secular Work. Jordan, welcome to the MercyCast. Raleigh, it's a joy to be with you, man. So I'm really interested in this story because here you are, you are a tech entrepreneur, you are doing things, you are out there pushing the needle and you're leaving your second job and you're thinking to yourself, what do I do now? And you're a Christian, so you want to do something that glorifies God but you're struggling because you're like, can I glorify God in this work? What happened next? I'll never forget what happened next. I was really seriously praying about two paths. One was to go plant a church because after all, the Great Commission is the only commission. That's what good Christians do. And the other path was go start a business. And I'll never forget, I had a mentor around this time who knew what I was considering. He pulled me aside one day. He said, hey, I hear you're thinking about planting a church. And I'm thinking this guy's going to pat me on the back, maybe write me my first check to get the church started. And he just looked me dead in the eyes like, yeah, I got to be honest, that sounds really dumb for you. This just sounds really tough. Wow. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, Jordan, you're a talented entrepreneur. You've created a lot of jobs. You served your community with excellence through these ventures. Why do you think you have to go plant a church to do ministry? Don't you get that your work as an entrepreneur is ministry? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My job is my mission field, right? I get to share the gospel with my coworkers, blah, blah, blah. But he's like, no, 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 no. Yes, all that. But your work has intrinsic value to God, even when you're not sharing the gospel. And I was like, I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, listen, with this conversation in the back of your mind, I want you to go read Genesis 1 and 2. I'm like, read Genesis 1? I've read read Genesis 1 and 2 500 times. What am I going to see new this time? But I did. And what I saw changed my life forever. I saw that before God tells us that he is holy or loving or omnipotent, he tells us that he is a God who creates. And long before the Great Commission, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we see the first commission that God gives humanity to simply make the world more useful for other human beings' benefit. 
and enjoyment. And that rocked my world. Seeing that in Genesis 1, seeing that Paul says this is part of our redemption in Ephesians 2 to get back to the good works God prepared in advance for us to do all along, which is the first commission. And it's the thing we're going to be doing for eternity on the new earth, see Isaiah 65. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This changes the game. Yes, my work has instrumental value in that I can use it to write checks to my church and use it to share the gospel, but it also has great intrinsic value because God himself works and created me to work as his image bearer. And bro, that changed everything for me. And that, that's the seed that over time has sprouted in this book. When you talk about this idea of the cultural mandate where he puts yep. us in the garden in the form of Adam and Eve. I mean, they're our first representatives and they're there and they didn't really do so hot, but they gave it the old college try and broke the world in doing so. But while they were there, he does. He's like, you are my ambassadors. And he gives them this mission of almost culture shaping. He wants, yeah, I want you to create culture. And he never took that away. I think a lot of us, when we get involved in ministry and we feel called to do this work, we just think, the pastorate is the highest calling. And we have this dichotomy, high calling versus low calling. And we don't understand that God is calling us to carry this gospel with us into everything that we're already doing. He's given us the Holy Spirit so that we would be sent out to take the gospel wherever we are. And we don't necessarily have to be preachers or pulpiteers to do that. And I love how you, you center on this idea of the cultural mandate and you talk about the intrinsic nature. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say a couple things. Number one, there's this deeply entrenched line in the church today that says that in a post-Genesis 3 world, the Great Commission has somehow canceled out the First Commission. That's a lie. God really? didn't need a plan B, right? Plan A was the First Commission <laughs> to fill the earth, subdue it, to make it more useful for other human beings' benefit and enjoyment. Satan didn't mess up God's plan, right? God doesn't need a plan B. The first commission is still our commission, only now we have a dual vocation in that we have the great commission that we're supposed to go about as we do the first commission, right? And oh, by the way, while we today, for largely the first time in church history, this, this is a pretty foreign concept to Christians before the 1800s, while we today elevate the calling of the pastorate, of the religious professional, when God decided which home to place his son in when he came to earth 2,000 years ago. He didn't place him in the home of a Pharisee where he would spend all of his days studying the Torah. He did not send him into the home of a priest like John the Baptist where he would spend all of his days in prayer. He sent him into the home of a small business owner where he would spend his days swinging a hammer and making things with his hands, right? If that yeah. doesn't give us intrinsic value to the thing we do today, I don't know what does. Last thing, and then I'll shut up. I promise, Raleigh. <laughs> Ever since the beginning of this thing we call Christianity, it has always been mere Christians working as entrepreneurs and baristas and accountants, not religious professionals that have been most effective at the Great Commission. Dr. Michael Green wrote this very famous book called Evangelism in the Early Church about how Christianity exploded in the first three centuries. And he says that more than 80% of conversions happened as a result of mere Christians simply sharing the good news about Jesus in the marketplace, around wine stalls, out in the world, not in the synagogue. And if that was true in the first few centuries, I would argue it's going to be true now. 
when non-Christians are less likely than ever before to darken the door of a church, and when entire countries are closing their doors to Christian missionaries. So if we want to be effective at the Great Commission in this next generation, man, we got to re-embrace that first commission to create culture and not just create disciples. And I love this. I love this idea because this drives everything I'm doing. I'm not necessarily out there just trying to make money or be a pastor. I have been a pastor and I'm very thankful for it. But during this season, there is a season of culture shaping where we're trying to help people understand how to live among their own vulnerabilities, among their the adversity they experience, and not to see it as a negative as much as this is shaping me to love my neighbor. And I want to see people understand that God's working through all things. You mentioned several things that I want to key in on. One, as you're talking about this, there are actual people who believe that the Great Commission canceled out the cultural mandate? Woo! Woo, buddy. Man, really? how many people do I need to cite here? All right, I'll call out names. Do it, drop names. Um, let's do okay, it. Okay, let's go. And listen, I'll preface this by saying, I'm sure I've written things that I regret, right? Now yeah. yeah, we all And have. I'm also going to say this person I'm going to call out, I agree with on a lot of things, but he gets this wrong. Rick Warren. Okay. In one of the in one of the best-selling books of all time, The Purpose Driven Life, he says, quote, the consequences of your mission, and here he's talking about exclusively the Great Commission. That's the context of this section. The consequences of your mission will last forever. The consequences of your job will not. End quote. And this is rooted in the way that Warren and so many other people define the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the first time in church history in the last 200 years, we have begun preaching an abridged version of Jesus's good news. Warren defines it this way. He says, Jesus wants all lost people to be found. That is, quote, the whole reason why Jesus came, end quote. Respectfully, no, it's not. And respectfully, if it was, then Jesus's victory on that first Easter Sunday is at best a partial one. Because in Genesis 1, God says that all of creation is good, not just people, right? All of it. Looks around the material world, the spiritual realm, it says this is all very, very good. Genesis 3, Satan, in conjunction with Adam and Eve, our forebears, screw everything up and the curse broke every square inch of creation, not just individual human beings standing with God. And so, to quote the theologian Stephen Lawson, if redemption does not go as far as the curse of sin, then God has failed. And right. that's what you're accusing God of when you say the gospel is just Jesus' good news to come and save you and me, right? That's not true. Jesus came to redeem all things. The spiritual realm, the material realm, which means that our work with the material realm Planting gardens, taking the raw materials of creation to make a latte, typing on aluminum MacBooks must matter to God because Jesus' blood paid the price to redeem these things as well and not just human souls. And you mentioned as you're talking and really articulating this idea of vocation, that our vocation matters. You mentioned this idea over and over of mere Christians. Flesh that out a little bit for me. Help us understand yeah. what you mean by that. Yeah, this is just my way of describing somebody who's not a pastor, not a full-time missionary, not a religious professional, right? They're mere Christians like me who spend a lot of their time working as entrepreneurs or as teachers or as truck drivers, whatever. 
And, you know, what I'm really encouraged about Raleigh is that all throughout scripture, we see God using mere Christians yeah. to do his work in the world. I think about Zacchaeus, right? We get it. We give a lot of attention to Peter who abandoned his quote unquote secular work to follow Jesus full time. And we ignore people like Zacchaeus who after repenting, Jesus blesses to go back into the work from which he came, right? And so I just love that we see mere Christians being elevated over and over and over again throughout scripture. And I think God wants to encourage mere Christians in the pews right now. There's a story told of a cobbler in a small German village. Now he has a relationship with Jesus. He's excited. And he talks to Martin Luther and he says, okay, so now that I'm a Christian, what do I do? And the story goes that Luther looked him square in the eye and said, make good shoes. Yes. And I think that's the beauty of the gospel, that as we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we are free. And we're free to love others. We're free yes. to love others through our vocation. I got to yes. write a foreword for a book by a man named Michael Berg called Vocation. And it's really exciting because he talks about this idea that God is the same God over the ditch digger as well as the priest. He cares for everyone and there is no small job. I think Mike Rowe of the show Dirty Jobs taught us that, that no matter what your vocation is, it matters. You're doing things that are ultimately serving your neighbor. And I think that's how we do it. But we get it, we get it lost in our heads sometimes that we have to do something big. We have to become a pastor or a missionary to change the world. And I honestly believe that you can change the world by caring for the people in front of you, by loving your neighbor. I think this is how God has instituted global change and global shifts. It starts on your block. It starts at your coffee shop. It starts in your house. And I think if we focus on our neighbor in that way through our vocation, we're going to see some things shift. And even if we don't, we can know that because this is how God designed it, things will. And so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, man. God doesn't need us to produce any fruit at all. God doesn't need anything from us, right? right? right. He wants us. What he desires is faithfulness. And the good yes. news about that is you can be faithful in the most mundane job ever. And honestly, in, in a lot of ways, it can be easier to be faithful in the most mundane job ever, as opposed to the person who the world is looking to and is celebrated by the world, right? There's a lot yeah. of temptation that goes with that. God's job is fruitfulness. Our job is faithfulness. We don't have to worry about impact. We don't have to worry about, man, like, I hear, I hear churches using this link. We got to grow the kingdom. We don't grow the kingdom. The kingdom is what it is. It's God's kingdom, period. We're just called to be faithful ambassadors of it, right? With whatever is in our hands today, seeking to steward it as faithfully as we can in love of God and neighbor, period, full stop. That's the whole game. And that gives us great freedom to simply engage in whatever. This is what Paul's talking about, First Corinthians 7, by the way. He's talking to a group of people who are like, okay, great, following Jesus now. Now what, right? Should I change, should I change my position in life? Should I change my station? Should I change my vocation? He says, hey, 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 verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them, right? Because God calls us to faithfulness, not necessarily fruitfulness. That's his job. So Jordan, say that a listener is hearing this and they're like, well, so I work at 
the local flower shop or I work at Walmart or, you know, I'm in a tech company. That's okay. <laughs> I can serve Jesus in that vocation. That's, that's all right. We almost need someone to absolve us of the guilt that we have that says we need to be doing the big thing in order to be loved by God. And we know if we're gospel people, so we need to be reminded of this, but God loves us and frees us to really do whatever, like love God, love others. Like there's to no do, magic thing, but there's no magic thing. There's no big thing. There's no small thing. And for the Christian, there's no secular and no sacred thing, right? Mm. That, we throw around these terms, terms so much and we never like really nail down what they mean. That, that word secular literally means without God. We yeah. Christians believe that God is with us wherever we go through the power of his Holy Spirit. So the only thing you need to do to make that flower shop, that secular place you work at Lowe's or Home Depot, whatever, to make your secular workplace sacred, here's what you do. Walk through the front door or log on to Zoom, period. That's it. That, that secular space is immediately sacred. Now, clearly, some work is off limits for Christ followers. I'm going to go ahead and assume that our listeners are not making a living exploiting the poor or peddling pornography, right? And if that's true, and you are doing your best to live unto God, then in the words of the great Spurgeon, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. Even with this podcast, not every guest that I bring on is a believer in Jesus. Just that's, I am. Praise and so God. I'm able to talk about my worldview. But at the end of the day, I believe that all truth is God's truth. And Amen. God doesn't work in this secular, sacred dichotomy that, I mean, were you like this? Because I was. I remember I was in my 20s. I was in college. I got a job at a Christian camp that I really loved. And I took all of my Christian CDs with me. And I had, right before that, sold all of my secular CDs. And I would talk about the things in these terms. I'd be like, I want to make yeah. Jesus famous. And so here I am. I'm like, I think it's better to get rid of this secular stuff that does not glorify God. And if that's where you are, I'm not making fun of you. But for me, what I was saying was I felt like I had to be a certain way for God to love me. And the irony of the whole situation, I amassed 200 Christian CDs and I had a Christian version of every band that I liked. And you know what? Someone broke into my car and stole my Christian CDs. Hopefully they got saved. Hopefully the, a, a revival broke out because of their thievery. But at the end of the day, for me, I stopped listening to Christian music at that point because I couldn't afford to. At this point, I had to trust my sanctification to come from another source. And, and God worked. And I, over the years, I started realizing that, you know what? If things are secular, that doesn't mean that they're bad. And I think God can work through all things and so I started to have this shift, and especially in vocation, I started to see people working jobs and doing better ministry than I was because I was spending 50 hours in a church office, not really doing anything with people. But I thought as long as I was at the church, I was a good pastor and a good Christian. But then almost leaving that freed me to do more ministry than I'd ever done. Bro, dude, this is so good. You're hitting on the doctrine of common grace, right? Isaiah 28 says this. It says, when a, farmer when a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? Mm -hmm. Listen to this. His God instructs him 
and teaches him the right way. It doesn't say that God just instructs Christian farmers, farmers who believe in him. He instructs all farmers. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about this, right? When he says that God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God is giving favor to his friends and his enemies right now. God does not just work in this world through his people. He bestows good gifts onto us through all people, right? And Keller was so good at expounding upon this. Here's what Keller said. He said, of course, all non-believers have seriously impaired spiritual vision, yet so many of the gifts of God, the gifts that God has put in the world are given to non-believers. So Christians are free to study the world in order to know more of God. For as creatures made in his image, we can appreciate truth and wisdom wherever we find it, end quote. All truth is God's truth. That's what Calvin said, right? And so we're free to listen to genuinely good music that is communicating truth, knowing that ultimately all truth is God's truth. This, this book I just wrote, The Sacredness of Secular Work, is really written for believers. But man, if I wanted to write a, a really eyebrow-raising epilogue to the book, I would have written The Sacredness of Secular Work Done by Secular People. There is, God is working through the believer and the non-believer alike in this world. And man, that's a, that's a paradigm shifting idea for a lot of people, including myself when I started to understand these truths. Well, and I think when we think about secular versus sacred, we divide us into an us and them dichotomy as yes. well. And so then we will say with our mouths that we want to be in and not of the world, but oftentimes we struggle to get in the game. We want to have that job that, well, I'm with faithful people, I'm with Christians. Well, sometimes we should be with the exact opposite and to let our light shine. And that doesn't mean that you are called to the pastorate. Anyone who is considering a call to the pastorate, know that God is calling you to live out loud as a believer right now where you are. And if you're sensing that God is calling you to ministry, Kind of take a look around. Who's coming to you? Who's listening to you? Who are you called to? Who are you passionate about? Who are you sacrificing for? And follow that thread. I'll never forget going up to a speaker when I was 18. And I remember going up to him and I said, hey, man, I really love what you're doing. And I actually want to do that too. I want to be a conference speaker. And because for me, you know, it would have been awesome for people to know my name, especially at that time. I was trying to save myself and I didn't really know it. And I thought as long as people loved me, then I was acceptable and loved. And right. so I was like, yes, if I get that, I can do it. And so I'm telling them, I'm like, I want to do this. I want the ministry of like a Dawson McAllister or a Louis Giglio. That's what I want. And I said, what do you think? And he looked at me and he said, you want to know what I think? And I said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I want to know what you think. And he goes, do you really want to know what I think? And I'm like, mm, yeah, no, yeah, no. And he said, I don't think you should do it because you're basing your decisions on the patterns of men and not the leading of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to know how you're being called? Do you want to know how you're being called? And at this point, he's a big guy and he's like staring me down and his fists is, his like fingers are they're, they're really big, but, but probably only because they're close to my eyes. And I'm just sitting there like, oh no. And he goes, do you want to know how you're being called? I'm like, mm. And he said, he said this, never forget it. Get yourself a job in a local church. When your phone starts ringing, that's when you're being called. 
You don't have to get a job in a local church for this to be true, but your phone will start ringing. People will start reaching out to you. You'll start to find things that you're good at and you're passionate about, and you'll kind of see where your passions and abilities intersect with need. And I think just go forward into that and see. It doesn't have to be perfect. It will be messy. But God will get the glory because you're living your life for him in dark places. Yes, man. Yes. And this is this stands in stark contrast to the way that so many Christians are living their life. Jesus' prayer before his crucifixion was that his disciples, his followers would go into the world. But so many Christians today are retreating into their Christian subcultural bubbles where we only listen to Christian music. We only listen, watch Christian films, which by the way, films and music don't have souls. So let's like, you know, couch that for a second. Really? We only want to work for Christian. Are you Christian- sure? Are you sure? I mean, <laughs> let's, let's fact check I want to push back on you <laughs> right here. Are you sure they don't have souls, Jordan? <laughs> and, but like, we only want to work in Christian businesses. We only want to work with Christian. This is not what Jesus prayed for. Jesus spent his time with the lost. And today, so many of Jesus' followers are spending all of their time with the found. What are we doing, Mm. right? We Mm. are called to be light. And light is not seen in already lit rooms, right? Man, mere Christian, embrace your role, please, as an act of obedience to Jesus Christ, right where you are amongst the lost people that you're working with Monday through Friday, and be light for these hurting and desperately lost people. And I want to absolve some of you who are living with that guilt of, I could do more, I could be better. Those voices, those aren't gospel voices. Amen. The law says, do more to be loved. Fulfill this and you will be loved. But you can't complete that. You can't do that on your own. But Jesus did that for you. And the only voice we hear from him is, it is finished. You are loved. and so. You're free now. So now that you're free, what do you want to do? You could work at the local gas station. You could work on Wall Street. Either way, you have a vocation that is serving people and it has eternal value. That's exactly it, bro. Dude, I tell do you, do you have kids? You got young kids? I don't. Mm-mm. You don't. So I got three daughters okay. under the age of nine. Last thing I tell them before they go to bed every night, I say, hey, kids. You know, I love you no matter how many bad things you do. Kids are used to hearing that, right? They're like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, I also love you no matter how many good things you do. There like, it is. And they say, yeah, 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 I get it, Daddy. I was like, who else loves you like that? And my theological sticklers say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I say, hey, listen, like, I need, I'm saying, I'm telling them that, but I'm telling myself, I need to be reminded of that truth. If you believe that God died for you when you were his enemy, surely you could believe that he loves you equally on your most productive, highest impact day and your absolute least productive, lowest impact day. And ironically, man, Raya, I'm curious if you've experienced this in your life, but I think the more you grasp that truth, ironically, it leads you to be even more productive and ambitious for God's glory because you no longer have to get something from the work that work was never meant to give you. You are free from the work beneath the work. And now I can just engage in the work as a means, as an outpouring of my totally filled cup of God's love and inevitably love more and more people as a result. Am I making any sense? Absolutely. And I love how your children 
answer that theological question in a triune way. They're like, God the Father, <laughs> God the Spirit, God the Son. They I know, all It's hard to me. believe they're, they're, they go to a Southern Baptist church. Very hard to believe. <laughs> it's like, and yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's, that's absolutely on point. I know I've struggled with this idea of is if I'm being productive and getting things done, then I'm more lovable, then I am more loved. And it's, that's anti-gospel thinking. That is not the way to be. That is, that's not the way to be happy. Like you can have down days. You can have down seasons. God does not love you any more or any less if you're in the, the ebb and not the flow. Yeah. Like, yes, you're yes. okay. That's exactly right. But and man, I love how you me, say that frees you. That frees, frees you, you. To, to do more. It, 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 ma- it makes me more ambitious to, more, to do more yeah. because working to earn somebody's favor, which I did for years, working to earn the favor of God, working to earn the favor of my parents and faceless people I frankly could not care less about on LinkedIn, but I pretended that I cared. Mm. That's exhausting. That's exhausting. But when you're working as a response to totally unmerited and totally unconditional love and favor as a response of worship, that's intoxicating. That's intoxicating. Well, you mentioned Rick Warren earlier, so I feel the need to go back to that. One of the things that I've noticed that really helps us when we are going through a hard time or we don't feel very connected to people or to our work, I found that when we kind of lose sight of our purpose, and I'm not getting purpose-driven here, but I do think connecting to your purpose, whatever that is, and that may not be the job you do, but connecting to that purpose will always give us that hit, that excitement. Like We'll feel like, yeah, I am doing something. Even if you are having an off day, when you're kind of connected to that purpose, you're going to be happier. And I think a lot of people in their vocations they may be wrestling with, how do I connect my purpose to what I'm doing? What would you have to say about that? Yeah, I would say the purpose of life is to be with God Mm. at the highest level. And I think work is a canvas for that. I think family Mm. is a canvas for that. I think the local church is a canvas for being with God. And so if the purpose of life is to be with God, then, oh boy, I'm real free to do all things for the glory of God, any job for the glory of God, because I can be with him and commune with him and feel his presence as I go about hammering nails on the top of a roof or being an investment banker on Wall Street or serving as a full-time missionary overseas or making a latte in my local coffee shop. He is with you in whatever you do. And so in whatever you do, you are fulfilling that purpose of being with him. And so you heard Jordan say that God is calling you all to open up Christian coffee shops in your small That's town. That's exactly with all of the T's in your logos as crosses, please, preferably. Yeah, please. Yeah, and if you can light them up on the sign too, to Woo. where they, they blaze at night, like that would- Fire. That, that would be great. Yeah, that would be wonderful. But yeah, you're right. It can be, you can be the barista, you can be a coal miner, but God is working through that. And God will draw people to himself. I've seen it. And, you know, it's, I think that's just such a beautiful concept and it's such a comforting thing. God's not out there with a carrot and a stick. He's not out there 
standing over a thousand piece puzzle that is your life saying, you got to figure this out and put the pieces together. I hate puzzles. I, if, if you call me and you say, hey, Raleigh, do you want to do a puzzle? I will hang up the phone because I don't like puzzles. <laughs> They're not easy. They're not fun. My brain doesn't work like that. I just stare at them. God is not like that saying, figure this out. He's like, it's all figured out in my son. Everything's a yes. You are good. So where do you want to work? What do you like? What are you passionate about? I'm not we trying to be so reductionistic, but the, no, that's, that's it. Like we, we spend so much time worrying about the will of God, mm. answering the what questions, what spouse does he have for me? What career does he have for me? I honestly don't think God cares. I really don't. I think he cares how you make those decisions. I think he cares that you do them with him because that is his will. But the what? So long as it's not out of line with his work, he could not care less. And this, there's so little in scripture about answering those what questions. You are free from the what questions, believer. Your mm. purpose is to be with him. And that opens up Pandora's box of what's possible about the what. So freely engage in whatever God is putting on your heart. Because you know what the world needs right now? Christians who are fully alive. So go do the thing that makes you fully alive as you love your neighbor as yourself in the thing that God put you on earth to do, which you've got a lot of freedom to choose. And I think this is so helpful for those of us who are recovering perfectionists, because on yes. this show, I've mentioned a lot of how my whole life I was a perfectionist and I just didn't know it. And it was really wrecking things for me. Because I always felt like I had to do the right thing. I had to have the right job. I had to date the right girl. And all these things were, it just made things messy because now you're looking through everything through this lens of law and not grace. Now I look at it as I'm an imperfectionist. If I get it right 50% of the time, I'm excelling. I'm doing okay. But now rather than, well, was that podcast perfect or was that speaking event amazing? Or when I was working with that church, did I do everything 100% right? Now I'm able to say, no, pressure's off. I'm not going to, nor do I have to. I'm going to give it my best. But now I kind of look at things through a lens of, did I do it or did I not do it? If I did it, success. If I didn't do it, then I might try it next time. But I no longer view things qualitatively. And I think as we think about vocation and we think about this sacred versus secular context, it's very easy to say, well, you know, if you're called into ministry, that's the highest calling. And I heard that when I was going to seminary, people were congratulating me. You're following the highest calling. Coincidentally, oftentimes the highest callings pay the least. But that said, what do you think about that phrase when people say, well, he's going into ministry? He's dedicated his life to full-time ministry, which I'm not against. But when we say it's the highest calling, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, man, I think this goes back to the beginning of the conversation. This is rooted in this heretical lie that spiritual realm good, material realm bad. Satan won the material world. Congratulations. And he and God shook hands, called it a truce. God's going to keep the spiritual realm Satan's going to keep the material realm. Everything's going to burn up except for God's word and people. I don't know where this idea came from. It didn't come from God's word, right? But if that's true, then full-time ministry is the highest calling. 
if 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 all God's going to save in the end is souls, if the gospel is just good news mm. in the spiritual realm, then the Great Commission is in fact the only commission, and most of us are wasting most of our time because most of us are not in quote unquote full time ministry. Right? Here's the good news, believer. The gospel is bigger than that. Jesus is king over the spiritual and the material realm that he redeemed on that first Easter Sunday. And if that's true, then the great commission is in place to make disciples spiritual realm. But so is the first commission that God never retracted to make more of this material world. And if that's true, oh boy, now a hundred percent of my time and energy can matter for eternity. There is no hierarchy of callings because there is no spiritual material, sacred, secular divide. And you are free to simply engage and make more of this world for God's glory and the good of others. And I don't know if I've ever thought about it in this way, but so much of our views on work are still impacted by platonic dualism. And that's oh, what you described. That, that's the root of all this. Yeah. That's the root. And we haven't, even, we haven't even talked about the new earth. But our theology of heaven and the, and the, and the Platonism that, that shapes our modern views of heaven is really at the root of all this. Right. Deeply rooted in this. Because when you say spirit good, flesh bad, then any job that reflects an earthy nature, it's not fit for the kingdom. Yes. But that's not what scripture says. You look at the first disciples, you look at Jesus, as you said, who came and was raised by a small business owner. I love that. Because basically you have a teenage mom, small business owner, they're doing this thing together. You don't get more vulnerable than that. And he ultimately lived this life to be in all of our shoes and to face the punishment we deserved, but rising to set us free to live abundantly. And we often go right to heaven and we miss this idea of living in the here and now. And I think that is something that is key about the doctrine of vocation. It's what do I do now? How am I loving others now? How am I serving God now? How am I reflecting on the impact of the gospel in my life now? And so help us with that because we've touched on a few things. One, when we do the sacred secular, we're kind of also implicitly believing that the gospel is only for unbelievers. But when we believe in a robust view of vocation, We believe that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but believers need to be reminded of this gospel so that they continue to faithfully execute their vocation on a daily basis. But now they're doing it with new fuel. Now they're doing it with new desires. Now they're doing it with new passions. And so for us, as we're thinking about it, what would you say, how do we keep our vocation grounded in the earthiness of life? The only way I know how to do it is to spend time really thinking deeply about God's plan for the earthy life, God's plans for eternity. Most Christians, in my experience, spend more time planning a one-week vacation than they do thinking about eternity. Mm. And that's a problem because when we do, it leads us to settle for culture's wishy-washy half-truths about heaven instead of the whole truth of scripture, right? For example, the half-truth that earth is our temporary home. Sure, in the sense that earth as we know it today is our temporary home, but scripture makes it abundantly clear that this earth is our temporary home until it's our perfect permanent one that Christ has redeemed, 
right? And when we think deeply about this stuff, and this is what I get into in the sacredness of secular work, it helps us understand how our earthy vocations today matter for eternity because this world is eternal, right? But we got to get beyond these cultural half-truths about heaven. We talked we talked a little bit about the abridged versus unabridged gospel a little bit earlier, but we also got it. We also got to address these half truths about heaven. And when we do, it's going to assign great meaning to the work we do today. And it's going to help us see how you just said a, a couple minutes ago, Raleigh, that the kingdom of heaven is not this far off reality. In the words of Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom is at hand, mm-hmm. present tense. I believe that what we are doing today, Raleigh, is a rehearsal for the eternal. If I die tonight, death will be a nap and I will wake up in the morning when Christ comes and resurrects us bodily on a new earth and continue the very work that we're doing right now. But it's impossible to see if you think everything's going to burn up in the end. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Daniel Block, and I'll never forget him saying that we can focus so much on heaven and forget that at the end of the day, we were called to be earthlings. Scripture talks very little about the present heaven. It talks a whole lot about the eternal heaven on earth. And that is polar opposite of what the heaven tourism industry is focused on these days, right? Talk about these close encounters and wonder about the right. The writers of scripture, their hope was not for heaven in the clouds. It was for Jesus to permanently rip the veil between heaven and earth. Sky Jatani, I was just hanging out with Sky in Chicago, and he pointed out that, I never noticed this before, heaven and hell are never mentioned together. If you do an exact keyword search for heaven and hell, it doesn't happen once in scripture. You know what is paralleled a whole lot in scripture? Heaven and earth. Yeah. That's the story of scripture. I'm I'm not saying hell doesn't exist, although many people are claiming that. I am saying that the right, that's the right, the writers of scripture are trying to figure out how we get back to the garden when there was no veil between God's dimension of heaven and our dimension of earth. That's where history is racing towards today. And what I love about that is we think about this robust view of work, this view that, well, secular work is actually sacred work. Then we carry that in, like you said, into the new earth. Because yes. we're we're gonna we're created because of the cultural mandate, like that has never gone away. We're gonna Correct. continue to represent God in this new earth with God being present. Like there's just gonna be this yes. beautiful thing where everything is now healed. What was broken is now fixed. Where there was no love, we are just lavished with love and grace. And that is a beautiful thing. And I think that is something that we can look forward to. Jordan, in these last couple of moments, could you give us a couple of pieces of advice as we're trying to think through, is my job okay? Am I doing enough? What am I supposed to be doing? How would you shed some light on that for us? Yeah. Every believer has a dual vocation today. The first commission to make culture and the great commission to make disciples as they go about making culture, right? You are free to do that in pretty much any way you want. My encouragement is that knowing that it all matters and not just the spiritual tasks, I pray it makes you think deeply 
about how to do the material tasks and the spiritual tasks as unto the Lord, right? That's, that's the response of this book. I pray that readers walk away from the sacredness of secular work with two things. One, massive encouragement that 100% of their time can matter in the grand scheme of eternity, not just the 1% of their time they spend praying and evangelizing, right? But number two, I pray that they're not just encouraged, but challenged to make it matter even more, to think about how do I steward this job I've already got, this business I've already got, and, and, and operate it more in line with my king's commands because Jesus is king, not just of souls, but of your business and of your job and of the tools of your trade. He's king over all of it. And so all of it must be submitted to his lordship. So my challenge is that you think deeply about that. What does it look like to take that keyboard, to take that, that barista stand, whatever it is, that cashier register you're working at, and submit it to Jesus the king. Hey, Jordan, thanks for joining us today. Dude, so fun. Thanks for having me, Raleigh. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.